everyone. Welcome to episode 186 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. We have a new member of our Patreon community to thank. Yes. Thank you so much, Jessica, for becoming a member. We greatly appreciate your support. Yeah. And Jessica decided to go with the annual subscription, which is a new thing we're offering. Yeah, instead of doing the monthly charge, you do it one time a year, so you don't have that monthly thing popping up, Um, but you get the same benefits at whatever level you sign up for. Right, and we have great swag. We have tote bags and bookmarks and pens. Yeah, so. And it's just as easy, too, to downgrade or upgrade or cancel your membership at any time. Yeah, we appreciate you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Chris, what are you currently reading? I'm currently reading a nonfiction book called How to Take Smart Notes, One Simple Technique to Boost Writing, Learning, and Thinking. And this is by Sanki Ahrens, A-H-R-E-N-S. And it is based on the intellectual knowledge organizational system of a German sociologist. And he called his system his Zettelkasten which is basically like a note card container. I was drawn to this book because, you know, I I like to watch productivity videos on YouTube sometimes about how writers and scholars organize their notes and how do they take notes? Because one of my challenges is I take tons of notes. I love taking notes on my iPad, my laptop, index cards, notebooks, I have so many notes, but then when it comes time to organize them, I get overwhelmed. So when people started talking about this book, you know how books make the rounds on social media, I thought, well, I saw somebody who I follow pretty regularly start talking about it. And so I've been reading a chapter here and there. So the sociologist, his name was Lumen, he had written an article while he was still working in the city government and some administrative role, he wrote this influential article and people were like, you should be teaching at the university. And he said, you know, I don't have the qualifications to do that. And within a year, he attained those qualifications to teach at the university and took off from there. Like he was a prolific writer. People wanted to know how he was able to write so much and he would freely share his system. What he would do was he would take a note on something that he read. And then later, hopefully the same day, he would take that note and rewrite it into his own words and have the citation and everything and then put a a number on it that would then go into his, his card box where he kept sheets of paper that had one idea on them. And then that way, with the numbers that he gave them, he would be able to, in the index, create a reference system linking these ideas together and how he organized his knowledge. If he had an idea or came across another idea after you've been reading and thinking, he would be able to easily find these ideas and then write as opposed to what the author of this book is saying is like, if you're sitting down and brainstorming, you're already just thinking about what's in your brain and you've already forgotten a lot versus having these notes at your fingertips. So I'm in the middle of the book. It's interesting. I don't know how it will work for me if I decide to implement this. It's very attractive. And I know in our online hyperlinked world, it's a lot easier to make connections between notes. 
And there are apps designed to work with the system. One of them is called Obsidian, which I've downloaded. I haven't started playing with it yet. But to have one idea that you write into your own words so you truly understand it and then connect these other ideas is is the goal. And this book is designed for not just academics, but people who write nonfiction as well, who are dealing with large amounts of information and facts and and ideas and how to have them in one place and know why the idea is an important one, really. Because, you know, sometimes you take a note and you're like, what the hell did that mean? But if you're putting in your own words and kind of linking it to how you're thinking about something, it can be very helpful. Wow. Sounds amazing. It does sound amazing, right? And he was prolific in the 1960s. So we'll see. I have more to come on this book. Again, it's How to Take Smart Notes by Zonky Ahrens. I'm reading Come With Me by Erin Flanagan. Erin is an Edgar Award winning author for her book, Dear Season. This book is coming out on August 22nd. I wanted to read the epigraph. It is difficult to say who do you the most mischief, enemies with the worst intentions or friends with the best. (laughs) Edward Bulwer-Lytton. And the book is told from multiple points of view going back and forth in time, which for me, if I'm reading a book with my e-reader, I find really challenging, but I am reading a print copy of this book. So I'm finding that I'm flipping back and forth a lot to make sure I remember which character is which and that sort of thing. What it starts out with is a group of three women. It's in 2012 and they're there as college interns for an advertising company. You get to know the three very quickly because they're short chapters. And then it takes those, at least so far, I'm not very far into the book, two of the characters back and forth in time as their lives have progressed. And one of the women is now in a very high position, like COO of that company where they started off as interns. And the other is a married woman with a child. And they come back together again. I'm not going to spoil why. I'm enjoying it so far. It's definitely a page turner. And this is my first time reading a book by Erin Flanagan. She is from Dayton, Ohio, which is where I used to live in that area. And she is someone who was involved with the Antioch Writers Workshop. Sadly, it's defunct now, but it used to be a group that met and did a yearly writing workshop. It was a week-long in-person workshop in Yellow Springs, Ohio. And Erin Flanagan was, I don't know if she ever taught there, but I know she was involved, as is our friend Sharon Short slash Jess Montgomery, who I worked with because I actually worked for the writers, Antioch Writers Workshop as a bookkeeper. So that was a very long-winded way of I used to know these names, and it was really fun. Erin reached out to let us know about this upcoming book. It was really fun to start to step into one of her novels. Again, it's called Come With Me. Erin Flanagan, please pre-order it now. She was our sponsor on episode 185. So if you go to our bookshop.org page, there is a book list with our sponsors and you can pre-order it with the click of a button. Awesome. (laughs) And pre-orders are so important. I know we've talked about them before, but they can really help. Help an author's career certainly helps the publisher know what to be doing with print numbers and stuff like that. So. Yeah. 
Okay, so, Emily, what have you just read? Another Dayton, Ohio author, Katrina Kittle, is another author that was involved with Antioch Writers Workshop, but also a lot of my friends read her novels and really enjoyed them. I don't know why I never read one of her novels. She's well known, but she's had quite a long hiatus, about a decade since she's put out a new novel because she had some things going on in her personal life that prevented her from being able to keep at it, I guess is the best way to say it. This book is publishing on September 1st. I want to talk about the title. It's called Morning in This Broken World. And this is based on a poem by beloved Mary Oliver called Invitation. Would you like me to read mm, the poem? Please. I just so happen to have it here. <laughs> <laughs> Invitation by Mary Oliver. Oh, do you have time to linger for just a little while out of your busy and very important day for the goldfinches that have gathered in a field of thistles for a musical battle to see who can sing the highest note or the lowest or the most expressive of mirth or the most tender? Their strong, blunt beaks drink the air as they strive melodiously, not for your sake and not for mine and not for the sake of winning, but for sheer delight and gratitude. Believe us, they say, it is a serious thing just to be alive on this fresh morning in the broken world. I beg of you, do not walk by without pausing to attend to this rather ridiculous performance. It could mean something. It could mean everything. It could be what Rilke meant when he wrote, you must change your life. I mean, come on. Yeah. Mary Oliver. <laughs> so Katrina Kittle, there's that one line, you know, in this fresh morning in the broken world. So her book is called Morning in This Broken World. And I have to admit, I picked it up and saw that it was a pandemic novel. And I was like, oh, I don't know if I can do this. And I put it down. <laughs> And I came back to it, and I'm so glad I did. If you're an Ann Tyler fan, I want to just say that first and foremost, I think you'll really love this book. Ann Tyler's kind of famous in my mind for putting a cast of characters together in a novel that wouldn't typically be a cast of characters in a novel, and it works. And I feel like this novel is like that. This one also is told from multiple points of view. And it starts in March of 2020, as the pandemic was starting, we find Vivian, who's in an assisted living facility, because her husband, Jack was suffering from dementia, but has now passed away. But Vivian doesn't need to be living in assisted living anymore. And as the pandemic sets in wants to go home to her house, for reasons which I'm going to leave a mystery a woman who is working at the assisted living facility and her family end up moving in with Vivian in her home. It's just a beautiful novel, the way that the characters end up interacting with each other and save each other in a time when we all needed some help is really beautiful. The themes are obviously of the pandemic, chosen family, co-housing, which I'm a huge fan of, especially as people get older, living independently while aging at the same time, motherhood, single working motherhood. One of the main characters is an essential worker at this assisted living facility. And then there's also a character that's in a wheelchair, a hot pink electric wheelchair. That's really fun. And a teenage boy who's 
coming to terms with his sexuality. So many characters. When I finished the book, I was like, character development. That's what she did so well. I cared about all of these characters. So I highly recommend this novel. I just loved it. Pre-order it now. Do Katrina a favor. Do yourself a favor. I want to read one other poem. Not only is the novel or the title based on Mary Oliver's poem, but in the acknowledgments, Katrina says that when she came across this poem, she was three quarters of the way through writing the book. And this poem helped her realize how she had to finish the novel or maybe even what she was doing with it. It's called, This is How a Pandemic Ends, Not with a Bang, But with Cicadas by Kathleen McCleary. We went underground this year like the cicadas, burrowed deep, huddled against roots, sucking what little sustenance we could from whatever we found. The cicadas sing outside my window now, and I swear the other sound I hear is the crackling of millions of exoskeletons, the shells we grew to harden ourselves against our longing to be touched. Mm -hmm. I mean, any author that loves poetry as much as Katrina Kittle has my heart. Again, it's called Morning in This Broken World, a novel by Katrina Kittle, publishing on September 1st. Nice. I wouldn't say I'm necessarily in a reading slump, but I realize the novels I have been reading were on my e-reader, and I just, I'm being e-reader resistant right now. Emily and I were talking about it the other day, like, I love it sometimes, and other times I just can't bear not to have a physical book in my hands. And Emily made the point like, well, maybe it's a summer thing. Like in the summer, you want that tactile vibe of sitting outside in the hotness and reading a book. Yeah. And I wonder if it harkens back to our childhoods too, where we didn't have e-readers. I mean, to me, or air conditioning. Exactly. (laughs) Yes. We sat in the hammock fanning ourselves with our book. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think there's something to be said for Mm -hmm. that because I'm the opposite. All I want to do is sit with a real book in my hand Mm -hmm. and just read. Yes. And, you know, we both just read The Scarlet Letter, which we'll talk about in a little bit. But it was a mass market size paperback edition that we both read. So that was also kind of the style of book that was popular back then for paperbacks. Yeah, that's true. So we're reliving our youth. (laughs) Well, I also finished two nonfiction books that I have talked about previously on the podcast. So I won't go in depth too much. But I did just want to mention that I finished them. One of them is Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders and the Birth of the FBI by David Gran. The gentleman caller and I read this aloud as we traveled to and fro from Michigan, which is, you know, more than 14 hours each way. So it gave us plenty of time. It's a hard book to say you loved because of the subject matter, but it was so well written. It starts in the 1920s, and it's about Molly Burkhart and her family, who were Osage Indians living on land that was given to them, was, you know, craggly rocks, nobody thought it had much value. And then they discovered that they were sitting on literally millions of dollars worth of oil. And so the oil diggers (laughs) come a calling. What this book is really about is money and greed and the lengths that people will go to be the people who have the keys to the kingdom, Mm -hmm. basically. It's divided into three sections. I think when I talked about it on the last episode, I was like, there are good white people who love Molly. And I'm sure some of you were in the background sniggering like, "Mm, just wait, Emily. 
Well, that's exactly what happened. The people that I thought were good didn't turn out to be so good. I don't want to spoil too much. But what Grand did that I thought was really interesting is by the third section of the book, he brings himself as the journalist into the story, which really surprised me at first. But then he was able to introduce his research tactics, which I thought you would really appreciate, Chris, because he literally goes to a hangar, an airplane hangar filled with boxes and starts rifling through them to see what he can learn. The reason I feel like it worked in the book is because he was also bringing us into current day and what happened with people who are heirs to some of these family members who the book talks about. What happens, as the title suggests, there are a lot of murders that take place. Osage Indians were killed. It's really sad. Parts of it are courtroom drama, and it really speaks to how important our laws are and how they work and don't work. It was really interesting. I highly recommend it. Yeah. Well, and the movie is coming out sometime soon, right? Yeah, October. Okay. Yeah. And it's being done by Martin Scorsese. Hopefully he's true to the story, you know, and it's not too Hollywoodized. I don't know. Leonardo DiCaprio is going to be in it, who I usually enjoy. Right. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI by David Gran. The other book I finished is Devil in the Grove by Gilbert King. This is about Thurgood Marshall and the Groveland Boys and the dawn of a new America. It was really interesting to read these books side by side because this one takes place between the mid-1940s through the 1960s. To me, part of the frustration about both of them is the importance of, but yet the frustration of the law and its role in our society. Thurgood Marshall worked for the NAACP in their LDF division, which was stands for Legal Defense Fund. He lived from 1908 to 1993. He won 29 of the 32 civil rights cases he argued before the Supreme Court, including Brown v. Board of Education in 1954, which led to the integration of public schools in the United States. Mm -hmm. He started to serve on the Supreme Court in 1967. He was a staunch liberal. He retired in 1991 and was replaced by Clarence Thomas. So I didn't really explain what the devil in the grove is about, but it is about this case down in Florida where several young black men were accused of raping a white woman. And it was not true. The story is very interesting, particularly if you are interested in the law. I feel like both of these books, if you're interested in the law, which is why I really wanted to read Devil in the Grove, because I am and I'm interested in how it works and how it doesn't. Mm -hmm. That was like a pretty hardcore crash course in early 20th century American history right there. Yes. And Devil in the Grove was my big summer book. So yay for me, yay for Mm -hmm. both of us. We've both read our big summer books. We have listeners reporting in on their reads. Please continue to do that. We love hearing from you. Send us emails or let us know on social media. Very good. So Scarlet Summer has officially kicked off and we both finished reading The Scarlet Letter. We did. We really enjoyed it. No, let me back up. Did we enjoy it? I'm glad I read it. I would say... I didn't not enjoy it. It was just difficult to read. Mm -hmm. 
And so I used the Cliff's notes <laughs> with it <laughs> and would read a chapter and then read the notes and then read a chapter and read the notes. And I have to say the notes helped tremendously. And also I couldn't read, even though the chapters were short, I couldn't really read more than three or four in a setting. And then I had to go read something else. Right. That's kind of what I did. I think I read like two or three Mm -hmm. and then I would move on because you really have to focus on what you're reading. As somebody said during the read along, I think it was Linda, the sentence structure, it's complicated. And sometimes the main point isn't until the end of a long sentence. So you do have to pay attention. There were times when I'd read a whole paragraph and I'd say, wait, what did I just read? And I'd have to go back and reread. And just a small aside, Emily was very precise when she said Cliff's notes, because they are Cliff's notes, even though we all call them Cliff notes. And funny story, I had a friend who was applying for a job with them And they're in Lincoln, Nebraska. And so my friend was applying for a job with them. And they sent back her cover letter with nothing on it other than corrections (laughs) to her cover letter. (laughs) The big start was circling the lack of an S after Cliff. So I think she pissed somebody off by saying Cliff notes and not Cliff's notes. Uh, so that Maybe was a, she p- pissed off Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> so to get a return with just your errors on your cover letter, that was <laughs> a quite humbling experience for her. And I always laugh about Cliff's notes because no one calls them that. No. Anyway. No. Um, yeah, so The Scarlet Letter, it was the second time both of us read it. Emily didn't remember reading it. I didn't remember much about the storyline. So just to give you folks who haven't read it a little bit of a summary of it. Hester Prynne is a woman living in the colony of Massachusetts. She'd been sent overseas ahead of her husband, who was going to follow her, a man named Chillingsworth, who is older than her. He has a physical, back then they'd call it a deformity. He has a bit of a a hump shoulder and he's older. He's a kind of a, an academic type He doesn't make it to the Massachusetts colony for seven years. The assumption is that he's been lost at sea or or something happened to him on his way over from Amsterdam, where they had been living, although they're both from England. And this is going to be spoilery because this is a read-along episode. This is also a classic that's over 150 years old. So Hester has an affair and a child is born named Pearl and The action starts with her being on public display, coming out of the prison where she's been held, the jail, I should say. And she has a scarlet A on her dress that she has to wear now for the rest of her days. That she embroidered. That she embroidered. They order her to put an A on her. But she makes it beautiful. Like it's A and it has gold embroidery. It's gorgeous because she's a wizard with her... With her needles. With her needle and threads, right? So no one knows who the father is. She refuses to name the father. You find out that it's the young preacher, Dimsdale is his name. What a name. I mean, Hawthorne's really good with names. And Dimsdale suffers from his guilt and his sin. And it's made even worse because he's not confessing it. But they don't reveal anything. But while Hester is up there being publicly ridiculed for the first time, 
I mean, everyone in town knows what's going on, but she's there on display and she's put in the stocks for like two hours or something. This man comes into view and he's with some Indian men, as they were called. And he's a white man who is also dressed, though, in Native American garb. So you're not really sure who he is. Well, it becomes pretty clear that husband has come. He's finally made it to America. Just as she's in the stockade. (laughs) Right. But he kind of gives her a sign like, you know, don't let on who I am. And then later they have a conversation and he says, "I, I want you to keep it a secret. I don't want anyone to know who I am. And so she keeps his secret. She keeps Dimsdale's secret. And both of these men are being driven to become demons in a way, Dimsdale, he's suffering. He's broken. He's broken, right? Yeah. He's shriveling and dying, possibly being poisoned by Chillingsworth. And he's becoming a demon. Like his face is changing and everything. Anyway, that is the gist of the story. Pearl is this like fairy, waif like, odd child of the forest. She's like a mini Snow White type thing <laughs> who is like <laughs> one with the forest. In the forest in early American literature, you know, that's where the demons lived and the witches hung out at night. So that's a bit of a summary, maybe to make sense of some of the things we'll talk about. And then our guest later in this episode is Professor Charles Vera, who is going to talk a little bit more with us about the Scarlet Letter and Hawthorne in general. Yeah. Yeah. And one of the important things to note is that Hester, even though when you start reading the book, you think, oh, poor Hester, she has to wear this letter on her chest. She's going to have a terrible, horrible life. She doesn't have a terrible, horrible life. She is the character in the book as the men devolve into, into, you know, I don't even know what she's thriving. Eventually, as the story progresses, they don't even think of the letter A as an adulteress, but they think of it as someone who's very able And people seek her counsel and she's living in the woods doing just fine via her ability to do needlework and harvest her own food and take care of herself and her daughter. Yeah. I mean, she becomes our Hester to the townspeople who really want people to know how great she is, you know, that she is more of the man in the story traditionally, right? She's carrying her burden She's not complaining. She's doing what needs to be done. Her biggest concern is this weird child that she has that she's (laughs) kind of worried about, like, from whence does this child spring? Because she is so weird. I mean, I hate to use the word weird, but she's she's creepy and ethereal and seems to know things, but then not know other things. You don't know as a reader, like, is she a fairy? Before I read Outlander, I had this idea that fairies were pleasant things, little creatures like from Disney, you know, like Sleeping Beauty, those three fairies. But in Outlander, there's one thing where like they're vicious, they could be mean and they could kill you, you know. So this reading of The Scarlet Letter, I was just struck by how creepy things were. I think I mentioned in the read along that first time I read the book, I thought, Pearl was kind of a pain in the ass. And this time I was really struck by how creepy she is and what's going on with her because she does seem to know things. She seems to be poking her mom and Dimsdale to do the right thing. Whatever that means. Right. (laughs) 
I know. Right? It's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And then the, some of the direct horror elements that are in there. So during our read-along discussion that we had yesterday, which was fantastic, thank you to everyone who was able to attend. We had a great conversation. Melinda was struck by the horror elements as well, and she's read this novel beyond counting. She loves this novel so much. And Aunt Ellen was struck by the supernatural elements, as she called it. But in terms of some of the the tropes, I guess you'd call it, like there's at one point... Wondering, you know, somebody could turn into a bat and fly away. And then another scene, like where Pearl, the thought was, can Pearl not cross a running body of water? And that's a big thing in horror stories and supernatural tales. So I was really surprised by that, that it wasn't just literary fiction as I remembered it. Right. There was definitely magical realism and horror type stuff. And then witches, yeah, and the witches in the story, though, like, they're just there. Mm-hmm. Like, people know that they go out into the forest at night with the black man and then fly around on their brooms. It doesn't seem to be that big of an issue at the time. <laughs> they don't seem overly concerned. <laughs> right, and even the governor's sister is right. a witch, a known yeah. witch. She is later executed, so this is before the Salem witch trial era, I suppose. We should say Hawthorne was deeply disturbed by his ancestors' involvement in the Salem witch trials and earlier. He had two ancestors in particular that he was distressed over their behavior and and treatment of women. Right, yeah. And murdering women for being witches. Yeah. Yeah. One thing we want to mention also is that the book starts with a piece called Custom House. I thought it was interesting because it's very autobiographical. You feel like, oh, this is Hawthorne and he's talking about a job he had. And the very end of this piece, he finds a scarlet letter. You know, he finds this cloth. While he's digging around. Yeah. He speculates that his predecessor had these personal things. And then when he died, they just cleaned his desk off because they figured it was all official stuff and just plopped it up there. But it's kind of cool. I mean, was that one of the earliest instances of a story being made up over some found document? Right. Yeah. We don't know. Yeah. Well, maybe somebody knows. Somebody knows. But when we were talking with the read-along group on Ellen said, she just had to skip the custom house. She knew if she tried to keep plodding along with it, she wasn't going to make it to chapter one. Yeah. And when we were talking to Professor Chuck, he said he actually doesn't require his students to read it because he's afraid they won't then read the story. Yeah. 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 So the custom house is a nonfiction semi autobiographical account of when Hawthorne became the head agent. I forget the title of the custom house in Salem, Massachusetts. This is back in the day when the main modes of transportation of goods were on waterways from the oceans and on rivers and lakes and things. So each city that would have docks that would bring goods had a custom house where taxes were handled for that kind of thing. And I'm sure there were times when different goods were banned and things like that. So he talks about these old men who are there in the custom house who they're so ancient and creaky in their ways that they don't even show up during the winter months. It's 
in the spring and early summer when they thaw out enough to leave their beds that they actually come into the office. <laughs> so it's kind of charming to look back and read that now. But he got into hot water, Hawthorne did, because he was a Democrat and these were Whigs and they thought that he was trashing them, which, you know, he yeah, kind of was. Right. But was he doing that? Was he poking fun? Was he trying to be funny? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All of the above, probably. Yeah. 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 So he got into some hot water. But it does set the stage for the Scarlet Letter. I think it also gives Hawthorne authority that he is part of this town for generations gone back. So he really knows what he's talking about, mm, even yeah. though he may have just discovered this right, up in the up. attic, right? <laughs> um, that there is there is an authority there. Yeah. Yeah, the custom house is tough. So was it Ellen who said that the audio edition she listened to did not have the custom house? It was me. It was you. Yeah. Okay. So I started, several people did listen to it on audio with different versions. There's many versions available. I started a version narrated by the actress Elizabeth McGovern. And I had already started the book, but I started at the beginning and they didn't have the custom house. And then I came to find that it was an abridged version. So I just put it away and didn't try an audio version after that. Okay, interesting. Yeah. When it comes to print-on-demand books, with these books that are out of print, it's really tough because I know in the Willa Cather book group I used to do, My Antonia has this introductory chapter that sets up the story of two people who run into each other and reminisce about Antonia, who they knew as boys or young people, I should say, in some print-on-demand <laughs> or even e-reader editions that people put out because they can, that got left off. Mm. So like one of the people in the group was like, what are you talking about? So that is an important thing and why I choose to usually go with a reputable publisher yeah. because of that. Because you don't want to miss out on important yeah. things that help set up a novel. You want to have a choice if you're going to skip it. Exactly, <laughs> right? Right. <laughs> I got a kick out of some things, like the way he used words. There's that one point where Dimsdale falls asleep. He's reading, and the line is that he must have been reading something from the somniferous school of literature, What you know, the school of literature that puts people to sleep. So <laughs> I was laughing and saying we should make that an official genre of literature. <laughs> yeah, uh, The Scarlet Letter. We have the discussion thread that's going on on Goodreads. If you decide to read it or if you couldn't make it to the read-along, we're happy to talk with people more there about the Scarlet Letter. And one important thing to say, I think, and as Emily reminded us yesterday during the read-along, this is our year of reading books about books. So choosing the Scarlet Letter was, again, inspired by Alice Hoffman's novel that's coming out in August. The Invisible Hour. Yes, The Invisible Hour, and that is a book that was deeply inspired by The Scarlet Letter. And so folks who are fans of Alice Hoffman really had a good time reading The Scarlet Letter to see some of those direct influences in Hoffman's writing from Hawthorne. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, I kept underlining things and saying, Alice Hoffman, yeah. the Owens sisters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, really great. So I'm really happy that we read this and then it's going to set us up for the rest of the um, summer. Yeah. The Scarlet Letter, Nathaniel Hawthorne. 
This episode is sponsored by Finding a New Normal, Living Your Best Life with Chronic Illness by Sue Jackson. Life with a chronic medical condition framed by restrictions and isolation is challenging. This guide provides inspiration and practical tips on living your best life with chronic illness from someone who's been there. Your life may be different than you planned, but it can still be vibrant and fulfilling based on strong relationships, a healthy emotional state, and finding joy in every day. This book is about living your life, not just enduring it. Finding a new normal, living your best life with chronic illness is available now. Check links in the show notes for more information. You can also visit our bookshop.org page where we have a book list with our sponsors to make it easier for you to purchase their books. All right, Biblio Adventures. I'm going to quickly recap a few things that I did in Ann Arbor on our way home from Michigan. We stopped at Third Mind Books, which has had an online presence for years, but just opened a brick and mortar store in 2022. And its specialty is first editions and rare books of the beat generation and other notable movements. And they have this really cool venue in the back where they do open mic nights, poetry readings, things like that. And it's right next door to Literati Bookstore, which I'd always wanted to get to. So we did a quick hop through there as well. And then we walked the campus. Ann Arbor is the home of the University of Michigan and went to the Harlan Hatcher Graduate Library. We have a listener, Sigrid, who I think works there. So I went up to a librarian. They were sitting behind the plexiglass And I asked for her and she tapped away on her keyboard. And I think maybe she hit like a button under the desk, like red alert, red (laughs) alert, hide, hide. I mean, I'm just making a joke, but she couldn't find the name. And, you know, maybe Sigrid doesn't work at that library. So I tried Sigrid, if you're out there, (laughs) it's a beautiful library and they have a map room, I think on the third floor. And we walked through that, which was really cool. So we had a great time in Ann Arbor. We didn't have much time. We had enough time to eat, which is always my priority. We went to Zingerman's, but then we got to stop at these three bookish spots. Wonderful. I'm so glad you were able to do that. Yeah. Yeah, cool. Well, and I forgot to mention in my recap of the week in Chicago, I also stopped in at Volumes bookstore, which is located at 900 North Michigan Avenue, which is a huge shopping mall, like multi-stories right there on the Mag Mile. I was on a walk and I wasn't ready to stop walking yet. So I Googled bookstores near me. They have another location too, Volumes. I don't know if they've opened since I've moved. I'm not sure. But that was fun. I went in there and had a nice browse around. It's a smaller shop, but they had everything from picture books up to literature and classics, some cool sidelines. I bought a box of thank you notes It was a nice little shop, so I just wanted to give them a shout out and to also remember that if you're in a city and walking around, sometimes you don't know where bookstores are. They can be in a tall building like that, you know? (laughs) Yeah, for sure. And yesterday... We had our first Scarlet Summer Biblio Adventure up to Concord, Massachusetts. Yes, we took off at 8 in the morning and we got to the Old Manse for an 11 a.m. tour of the house. Yeah, it was so neat to finally get inside. The last time we were up there, we were there when they weren't open. So it was great to get inside, had a wonderful tour. 
with a guide named Mary Beth Bass, who turns out she's also a romance author. Because yeah. we talked to her a little bit after the tour, and um, I asked her to recommend a biography of Hawthorne, and she recommended the one by Brenda Wineapple. So I picked up a copy there. But the tour was great. So this is a house that was built in like 1770 by Ralph Waldo Emerson, the philosopher writer of the Transcendentalist movement by his great-grandfather, maybe. Mm -hmm. And so it was always owned by the Emerson family up until, what did she say, like the 1930s or something like that? late 1930s. Yeah. Yeah. So there's another family named Ripley that lived there. Um, But Nathaniel... And Sophia lived there for three years right after they were married. And their first child, Una, was born there. Una, who the character Pearl in The Scarlet Letter is based on. Right, yeah. Which lot gave of us pause when we, when we <laughs> <Yes>. heard that. <laughs> <laughs> A lot of similarities, I guess. So The Scarlet Letter came out in 1850. And they lived there from 1842 to 1845. And little Una was born there. And so... When the tour first started, Mary Beth asked us all, because there was two, three, four, five, six of us on the tour. She said, you know, so what are you all most interested in? Because there's the Revolutionary War aspect. There's Nathaniel Hawthorne. There's the Emersons. There's the Ripleys. A lot of different things. And we're kind of into Nathaniel Hawthorne, and she's a big fan. So that was fun. But she did talk a lot about the Revolutionary War as well, because on the second floor, the room that was Hawthorne's study is where, I'm not sure if her name was Emerson now, but one of the ancestors was in that room with her four children watching the Redcoats challenge the Massachusetts militia over the river that was right there. And that's where the saying, the shot that was heard around the world was from and like you can see that bridge from that window man mary beth we also find out her background is in acting right in theater (laughs) so when she would be telling a story like she was really dramatically telling a story not like in character but just telling a really good story about how scary it was to be in that room to be watching the british army come who's the most powerful army in the world at that time challenging the militia, not knowing if the Redcoats are going to come and burn down their house or rape and pillage. Like, you don't know because it's happening in real time, right? We look back at that and we I think... We know the answers. We know the yeah. answers. We know yeah. what happens, right? Yeah. But just how frightening that would have been. She was very compelling in all of her storytelling. But again, like you said, not overly dramatic. Like Mm -hmm. Chris and I have done some tours where people are in costume and playing the role of the maid or something. This was very different. It was just bringing some of the real stories that happened there to life in her way. Yeah. And she was really great, too, because she said early on, she's like, now, if I say anything that's wrong, let me know. I know a lot of people on the tours know a lot about whatever subject. So if I say something wrong, I would really like to be corrected. Yeah, she did a great job. Yeah, Yeah. really great. And so Emerson also wrote in that studio, and they have a replica made of the chair that Emerson wrote in, that it's one of those chairs that has the little desk that comes off of the right hand arm. And I guess he was so tall that he made a little adjustment to it to raise that. 
So his original chair is in the museum somewhere, but they had this replica made of the chair and it was painted green in his day. I guess since then somebody painted the original black or something. But my favorite part of that tour was seeing the etchings in the window pane that Sophia and Hawthorne Nathaniel had done with her diamond ring. Because when I first got into Hawthorne, when I was in my 20s, I just thought that was the most romantic thing. And I thought too, like, wow, like here's this great American author and this, this, what would you call it? Not really ephemera, (laughs) but like that he left this piece of his life there etched in the window. So that was so cool to finally see in person. And that's kind of what Mary Beth was doing with the tour, too. She would say, like, this bench is where so-and-so sat during this time. You know, and it just made you, like, you looked at the bench and suddenly it was alive, you know. Yeah. So she did a really good job with She that. did, yeah, because there's in the room that was their bedroom, there was this long, it almost looked like what you would think of a long lounge or a settee or right? something. Yeah. yeah. So that's where Nathaniel would take his naps and edit his writing and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, so can I read some bits? Sure. Okay. So this morning, Emily and I were together talking nonstop about Hawthorne and Concord and all that from 8 a.m. to 11 p.m. Um, but this morning I got out my copy of Hawthorne's American Notebooks and I was looking at places in here where the manse was mentioned or Sleepy Hollow. And I just have to say, so they move in in 1842 and he was a prolific journal writer and also just a note taker. Like he would dash down a note that doesn't make any sense to us, but obviously meant something to him then. But this was a longer entry. And he says, I wish I could give a description of our house for it really has a character of its own which is more than can be said of most edifices in these days. (laughs) Preach. (laughs) And he goes on to kind of describe it. And he's talking about Dr. Ripley, their predecessor, and just how kind of like old fashioned and nothing had ever been really done with it. It required some energy of imagination to conceive the idea of transforming this musty edifice where the good old minister had been writing sleepy sermons for more than half a century into a comfortable modern residence. However, it has been successfully accomplished. And then a little bit later, he's talking about that room that was their sitting room where the owl was in that room. And he says, with a daily supply of flowers, it has become one of the prettiest and pleasantest rooms in the whole world. The shade of our departed host will never haunt it, for its aspect has been changed as completely as the scenery of a theater Probably the ghost gave one peep into it, uttered a groan, and vanished forever. (laughs) So I thought that was kind of funny. Maybe it was because it saw the owl, remember, whose eyes follow you as you move around the room, and they've discovered is giving off toxic gas. Yes. It's now enclosed in glass. So that was a funny story about this stuffed owl, and apparently Nathaniel liked it. And Sophia didn't. So right. whenever he was out of town, she took it and hid right. it. So she didn't have to look at it. <laughs> they found letters where she did write, I think, to her sister and said, the eyes follow me around the room. So, yeah. 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 So it was a wonderful tour. And after that, we went to the Concord Bookshop, 
which is right in downtown Concord. Everything was very close together. It's a beautiful bookstore, really well curated. They do have a nice local section with Emerson, Thoreau, Hawthorne, Alcott books. And it was Thoreau's birthday. Yes. So July 12th, 1807, he was born. Was that it? Well, his, it was his 206th birthday. Yeah. So you guys do so, the math. <laughs> yeah. So um, we took a photo in front of the section with a lot of his books because Walden Pond is just down the road. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I did pick up, I'll just mention briefly, a really nice poetry collection, The Path to Kindness, Poems of Connection and Joy, edited by James Cruz. I have another one of these collections that I love. And then a copy of The Street by Ann Petrie. And then I got a book for the gentleman caller's birthday called Bicycling with Butterflies, My 10,201-Mile Journey Following the Monarch Migration by Sarah Dykeman. This is a winner of the National Outdoor Book Award. If you are an adventurer or know people who'd like to adventure, I'll put a link in the show notes to the um, National Outdoor Book Awards. They have really cool books that you might not hear of otherwise. So if you're looking for books about adventure or gifts, it's a great resource. Nice. So after that, we had we had lunch, and then we went over to the Wayside, which was the only home that the Hawthorns owned. And it's not open right now to the public, which is really sad. You'll hear Dr. Chuck expressing some anger over that fact and our guide Mary Beth was also upset about the situation there were three authors that lived in that home over the the decades and they they all made alterations there's a really cool sign that's color-coded that you can see which family made what additions to it so it wasn't open but we parked and decided to go walk around it as Dr. Chuck had recommended to us And we peeked in the window and walked around the back. And then there's this path that we took that goes up past this big boulder. So it has a plaque screwed to it that mentions how Hawthorne would pace and go up the hill and walk this path to have inspiration in his writing. But we took this other path that leads right to Orchard House, which is just down the street, the home of little women. Right. And so we went back to the car. (laughs) And then we drove down the street to see what was that way. And then when we were coming back, there were two police vehicles in the driveway of the wayside. And all the lights were on in the house. So we think, perhaps, (laughs) there are either cameras in the house or someone reported that two middle-aged women were poking around the house and never came out. (laughs) Because we did take a little secret passageway through the woods. Yeah, so then our imaginations got the better of us. And I said to Emily, I was like, oh, my God, like, what if they go in there and they find a dead body and then we get pinned for the murder? (laughs) You can see Chris not only is a mystery book reader, but, you know, (laughs) should be writing her own novels. (laughs) Yeah, that was fun. It is a shame that it's not open. It's owned by the National Park Service. Yeah, hopefully they'll get it together. I don't know. We don't know what the situation is, but it's a beautiful house. And there were things there, like there were chairs on the porch. So I think that they use it sometimes. Yeah, an event signage. Yes, to clarify, it has been open to the public, but now it's not for some reason. So, And we don't know why. Yeah. After that, we went down to the Concord Public Library, 
where we had arranged to have a room so we could host our read-along conversation of The Scarlet Letter. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And I had a great surprise. Standing behind the circulation desk was a friend of mine, Ev, who I was in a book group with in New Haven, and she had moved back to Canada. And on social media, I saw her posting photos from Boston, but I assumed like she was on vacation or there for the weekend. She's moved back. So it's kind of great um, yeah. that we can connect again. It was lovely. Such I a, thought it was one of your classmates when you first were all excited. And then I realized you knew each other another way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So cool. So wonderful. Thank you to the Concord Free Public Library for the space and for being so kind and friendly with us. It was really perfect. And it was also incredibly hot yesterday. So it was nice to have a place to cool off and get our wits about us before we had our real long conversation. And then when we were done, and we had done, did the same thing in 2018, when we were up in Concord, we decided that going to Sleepy Hollow Cemetery to pay our respects on Authors Ridge would be a good thing to do at dusk. <laughs> Forgetting that that's when the mosquitoes come out in droves. Yes. But yes. We still managed to find some authors on Author Ridge. Yes, we saw Thoreau and Hawthorne, of course. And Alcott is buried there as well, and Emerson's. And then we also tracked down Elizabeth Palmer Peabody's headstone. So. She was the founder of kindergarten in the United States. Yes. Yeah. And she is one of the Peabody sisters that Megan Marshall has written about. And um, her sister, Mary, married Horace Mann. And then the other sister, Sophia, married Hawthorne. Right. So they were quite the trio of sisters. And I have another little thing to read from Hawthorne's notebooks, if you don't mind, which is quite appropriate. This is a journal entry from 1844, and the cemetery opened in the 1850s. So Sleepy Hollow was already a place back then. It was an actual hollow in the ground. And when Hawthorne was writing this journal entry, there was corn growing there. And I read somewhere else that there's documentation or a story that Hawthorne told that he and Sophia were on the ridge looking and saying that that was where they were going to build their castle. Um, well, they build their castle for infamy and time where they would spend the rest of their right. lives. <laughs> yes, because one detail we didn't mention yet was that they actually got kicked out of the, the old, old manse. Man. They were evicted for not paying their rent. Oopsie. Oopsie. So this is Hawthorne, though, writing this, this. He's sitting there writing this journal entry. Insects are fluttering about. The cheerful, sunny hum of the flies is altogether summer-like and so gladsome that you pardon them their intrusiveness and impertinence, which continually impels them to fly against your face, to light upon your hands, and to buzz in your very ear as if they wish to get into your head and amongst your secret thoughts. In truth, a fly is the most impertinent and indelicate thing in creation, the very type and moral of human spirits whom one occasionally meets with and who perhaps after an existence troublesome and vexatious to all with whom they come in contact, have been doomed to reappear in this congenial shape. Here is one intent upon alighting on my nose. In a room, now, in human habitation, I could find in my conscience to put him to death, but here we have intruded upon his domain, which 
he holds in common with all other children of earth and air, and we have no right to slay him on his own ground. I just thought that was kind of like relevant. I don't know how he'd feel about mosquitoes if he did kill them (laughs) in their home ground. But I just thought that was so cool that he's sitting there riding in this place where corn crops were currently growing, which would eventually become a park-like cemetery and where he was buried. Yeah. 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 Well, they were vexatious bugs. I agree with Hawthorne. Yeah, totally. (laughs) You know, and I just want to read one more quick thing. So talking about Una, his first child being an inspiration for Pearl and the Scarlet Letter, I just thought people who've read it recently would appreciate this from a journal entry in 1844. The baby the other day tried to grasp a handful of sunshine. She also grasps at the shadows of things and candlelight. Mm. And then the editor put in parentheses, this baby was Una. And there's so much about Pearl and sunshine. It's a big theme in the book. Yeah, and we saw Una's grave yesterday as well. Yes. Yeah, Yeah, she and Sophia were reinterred in... Wasn't it like 2006? Yeah, it was pretty recent. Yeah, Yeah. they had been, they died in London, I think it was, wasn't it? Yeah. Uh, Yeah, so they got reinterred with dad there. Yeah. And then after that, we went back to the old manse and filmed a video, which you can find on Instagram. Yes, and that's where we really got chewed on by (laughs) mosquitoes. Boy, it was so hot and humid and muggy, but it was neat to be there at dusk and to to just kind of recap our day a little bit. And then we got in the car and drove home and we're home by 11 o'clock. So we Mm -hmm. started our morning at 8 in the morning and ended at 11. And both fell into bed. <laughs> yes. Oh, man, I slept like a rock. Yes. <laughs> but man, that was a fun day. I really enjoyed it. And the good thing was, we didn't rush around at all, yeah. which I really liked, especially with it being so hot, that would have yeah. made us both a bit cranky. But we got in everything we wanted to do. And it was a pretty casual, stimulating day. Indeed. Yeah. So upcoming jaunts, we have another joint jaunt next week. We have the Vintage Book Club where we are going to be reading The Street by Anne Petrie, which is why I bought a copy at the Concord Bookshop. Chris has already read this book. I have not. So I have work to do. Yeah, I'm probably going to reread it or at least parts of it. And the Vintage Book Club is open to everyone. It's next Thursday, July 20th. We will be at the Red Heat Tavern in South Windsor. 1 p.m. We meet there because our normal location, the Wood Memorial Library and Museum, currently doesn't have air conditioning. And with it being so hot, Cindy, who is our host, owner of Book Club On The Go, you can find her at Book Club CT on social media, has a great relationship with them and they have a private room in the back that she reserves for us. And if people want to attend, I just want to say don't feel obligated to purchase food or drink if you don't want to. Water is free. Yeah. Um, I don't want people to feel like they can't come because they don't want to buy food. And it's a big, open, cool space. Yeah. So come join us if you want. How about upcoming reads, Chris? Well, I have two things in my grubby little hands right now. One is Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Dieter. And this is a book that really, I've seen other people talking about it. 
And I'm so curious because it's dealing with a subject you and I have talked about a couple times. Monsters referring here to people who do bad things, who are artists. Do you read their books? Do you buy their books? Do you buy their art? Like, how do you engage or do you or do you not engage with their works? So I just bought a copy recently. And then the next book is How Can I Help You by Laura Sims. This sounds like a real page turner of a mystery novel. The lives of two librarians become intertwined in this razor sharp exploration of human nature and the lure of artistic obsession. It's coming out July 18th from Putnam's. So thank you so much for the advanced reader copies of this. I love the front cover. It's showing one of those library card checkout thing that's on fire. It's very cool. So this book, How Can I Help You by Laura Sims, is going to be the giveaway for August for members of our Patreon community. Note, if you haven't heard yet, members of our Patreon community are automatically entered to win this giveaway. We do one on the 15th of every month. And we're doing a little drive right now trying to get 10 new members. We'd love to have you. Yes. So go to patreon.com forward slash book cougars or check the show notes to find out how you can become a member of our community. We would love to have you. We also do fun little videos where we tell you about the giveaway book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I have, as we've mentioned now a couple times, The Street, which I'm going to be reading, and then Hester, which is the next book for our Scarlet Summer And we are not going to be hosting a read along for this book. We are going to be talking with the author and we're talking with her on August 16th. So if you are reading this book with us, which we hope you are, feel free to send us questions to bookcougars at gmail.com. We have a thread on Goodreads. Get in there. Let's talk about this book. And then we're also reading The Invisible Hour for Scarlet Summer. And this is in September We're hosting a read-along on Sunday, September 17th, where we're going to talk about that book, but we're also going to make it a longer read-along so we can talk about all three of the books. Yes, yes. And that one's by Alice Hoffman. And what's cool about this is Hester is set in the 1850s during Hawthorne's time. And then The Invisible Hour is set more in our contemporary time period and deals with how the Scarlet Letter helps this woman. So we think it's really a cool series of books. And we've also been told by listeners that Hester is a great audio book. Yes. Yeah. You might want to check that out as an option. I'm going to do both, I think. And we have a copy of Hester to give away. So if you are interested in winning a copy of Hester, please join our newsletter by July 31st. We're going to give this book away on August 1st. And that is for newsletter subscribers, which is absolutely free. And you are automatically entered to win if you are subscribed to the newsletter. Wow, we have covered a lot of information. I have one more book that I want to talk about, which is We Ride Upon the Sticks by Quan Berry. We have a bingo card for our Scarlet Summer. This is a book I might substitute somewhere. We put books like The Scarlet Letter and we put our three read-along books multiple times on the bingo card. So I might just scratch one of those off. Anyway, we want to hear about your bingo cards and how they're going. Reminder that, and this is in the show notes, but bookcougars.com forward slash Scarlet Summer 2023 has 
all of the information about the Scarlet Letter, including a downloadable link for your bingo card. Yes. Yes. Wonderful bingo card. It was so much fun to scratch off the Scarlet Letter. We have the Scarlet Letter on there four times. (laughs) And then the other two books are on there three times because we do want to make it easy for people to win bingo. But really, if you want to be an overachiever, we salute you in reading all of the books that are on this bingo card. And as Emily said, substituting some for what you want to read. Right. Exactly. Send us pictures of your card and your substitutions. (laughs) And we're going to stop talking now. Because we are going to talk more with someone else. Yes. Take a break, hit pause, go to the bathroom, (laughs) have a beverage. (laughs) And then come back and listen to us talk about Nathaniel Hawthorne and the Scarlet Letter. We're so excited to be here today with Professor Charles Barra of Southern Connecticut State University, where he teaches American literature. He's also serving as the president of the Nathaniel Hawthorne Society, and we've invited him here today to talk with us about the Scarlet Letter. Welcome. Thank you very much. I'm glad you invited me to talk with you. So, Chuck, when did you first come across Hawthorne and the Scarlet Letter? Well, I hope I don't have to give you the year. (laughs) (laughs) I would say junior in high school, so I guess the late 70s. And I am not sure I understood very much of it at the time. And graduate school is when I really got more into Hawthorne. Honestly, at that point, Herman Melville was probably my favorite 19th century writer, but he's too much. I'm like, I can't write a dissertation on Herman Melville. Uh, (laughs) So Hawthorne, there's things to talk about in all of his works all over the place. And that's how I started really reading closely. So that's interesting because we've talked often on the podcast about how we think sometimes the classics are taught to high school students and it's at an age where they can't appreciate it. Sometimes it has to do with the way the teacher teaches it. And sometimes Mm. it just has to do with where they are in their own lives and their life experience. So it wasn't love at first sight for you with Hawthorne. I mean, I, I can remember a little bit about the reading experience. So that's pretty powerful. Like that's something I think there was affect or emotion or feeling that I connected with. Um, And I was pretty historically inclined. So I was probably interested in that. But yeah, I, I didn't appreciate its elegance. You know, it's one of the most balanced and carefully constructed novels that we have. The chapters are like perfectly symmetrical in terms of the action. And it's it's pretty amazing. It's a very tight story and novel. Things like that, that I just old timey. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Well, that tight is such a great word for it. Because I had that thought too, when I was reading it. The first time I read it was a long time ago, like in maybe the 90s, sometime in in that time period. And I really enjoyed it that first time. I was surprised. I was in my 20s and I had somehow escaped reading it in high school. Most people we encountered have facial expressions when you mention the Scarlet Letter. (laughs) Um, Usually they are not of the pleasant variety. Um, this, This reading, I was so surprised by like the building tension and how like I was like really gripping the book and waiting for things and what was going to happen next, because it did feel like a fresh reading. It had been so long since I read it. And and one of the questions we had is the subtitle, The Scarlet Letter, A Romance. Mm. And we're wondering if you could talk a little bit about that in terms of what that meant back in 1850 versus today. Uh, Yeah, as I I wrote in my notes, it's no bodice ripper. (laughs) Okay, well... 
It actually is. It's really hard for me not to be very digressive, and I'm just going to give up and go with it. Go for it, um, please. So first, there's amazingly interesting and, and even kind of funny critical reviews attacks on The Scarlet Letter as a dirty novel, unfit for people to read. And then, as now, much of the reading market was women, and people knew this, and they were worried about the effect Scarlet Letter would have on young women. And one of the reviews talks about riding on the train and seeing a young woman with the red cover of the Scarlet Letter and fearing for her soul. Mm. She corrupted. And Hawthorne, I mean, he wanted that red cover and it stood out. Most of the covers were green or brown. They weren't so sterling and bright and scarlet. (laughs) So, I mean, if you look at just the pot abstract, I mean, sleeping with your ministers, that's pretty racy. True that. <laughs> yeah. letting, your, letting, your, letting your hair down. I mean, I was just looking at something the other day, an NPR conversation from 10 years ago or so, and they mentioned Hester letting her hair down scene. And it reminded me that, you know, her hair would be up for religious reasons the same way people have their hair, you know, covered for religious reasons today. So to let her hair down, it's a beautiful scene and very dramatic. So we're just Jaded, I say. <laughs> Fifty Shades of Grey jaded us to what we think yeah. is racy anymore. So, I mean, I mean, it's true that like we don't want this to sound wrong, but I do want to recover some of that transgression when teaching this the book, like to try to help students see that this is a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard for them to understand Dimsdale's role as spiritual advisor, as leader of the community. He's the embodiment of all good. And to have an affair with him is a lot. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much commentary within the novel about the young virgins in town and how they are basically, you know, kind of throwing themselves at him, at least in a restrained manner, whatever that means. Um, (laughs) So I can imagine the reaction, I guess, at the time period. Did it cause a lot of questioning of pastors and priests and what may be lurking in their hearts? Were there concerns that way about perhaps the men who are the religious leaders in my community are not what they appear? Or was the focus mainly on on protecting women and virginity? Uh, I think you answered the question there at the end. Because <laughs> we're always worried about that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's the most important concern. So one answer is yes. But they spoke about it in terms of an attack on the clergy, mm. an attack on the institution, an attack on, you know, just authority, not like the personal, you know, desire and possibility to transgress. I've never read anyone say anything about that. So that's interesting, actually. It makes a good point that even in their concern about that issue, they had to veil it in structural terms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Not like, oh, I might be a Dimsdale or... right. Yeah. And that relates to another thing that I um, was thinking about when I when I see sort of summaries of the book online or where and they talk about the idea of sin in the book. And one of the things that strikes me that we often say that seems a little off, the Puritans who are Calvinists, the whole basis of that is the innate depravity of humankind. Like everybody's a sinner. This is mm-hmm. not news to them. And it's not news to Hawthorne or the, his narrator or you know, the characters in the story, it's more expected. So there's something interesting about the particular transgression. Well, we know what it is. It's sexual and it's about controlling women and all of that. 
that is what's really at stake and terrifying and needs to be marked on her body and called out. So that's another thing that next time I teach this book, I got to think about. It's not that you know Hawthorne's doing some interesting exploration of the darkness of the human heart. That that was American culture. That wasn't anything special for him to plumb. Um, I guess it's the ubiquity and the forms that that, that can take in all his different stories and editions of Scarlet. Right. Oh. I have not forgotten your original question. <laughs> <laughs> Being a, a bit of a pedant, I want to go back to it, the other side of romance. And so there were two main types of novel at the time. One was the realistic novel that purported to have as much verisimilitude as possible. And you had to stick to sort of known probable events, like things that everybody could believe in and could document. The romance, by calling it a romance and asserting a romance, Hawthorne is claiming for himself the ability to shape reality to fit his story and his point. And so in practical terms, at the end, when they're on the scaffold, I can't remember Mm -hmm. the chapter title, and, you know, the big reveal... Is that something supernatural happened? Is there a supernatural appearance of an A on Dimsdale? Or has he cut himself? Or is there a sign in the sky or northern lights or meteor shower or whatever, right? He allows himself that ambiguity as he does in the level of the syntax, right? That's something fun to talk about. The style of this book is, is pretty amazing. So that's why he wanted to call him a romance so that he could assert things that would be more in the realms of metaphysical reality than empirical reality. Hmm. This leads me to another teacherly point. I think that the essay, The Custom House, is really crucial and important. Every time I teach this book, it's tricky because on the one hand, you have the fictional part, which is so tight and composed and enough to deal with there for readers and students. On the other hand, you have the custom house, which is the baggy, shaggy monster. I can't remember the Hawthorne or Melville called one of their works that. But because it contains like five different types of sketch, it is really important for the book because there it's hyper-realist. In fact, he got in trouble and may have lost his job because of the portrayal of people who worked at the custom house who were Whigs, the political opponents of the Democrats. This was taken to be, you know, like highly partisan, unacceptable, fireable offense by certain Whigs, Uh political enemies of the Massachusetts Democrats that helped Hawthorne get that job. So that's really interesting. This very precise, realistic detail in his description of the custom house and the work that goes on there. But then he seamlessly blends into this narrator in the attic finding a scarlet letter that burns him. Right. <laughs> and and that, you know, the manuscript practically alive. Right. And that he just finds it. Right. So so then this is a claim for historical truth value that you gotta put next to the burning piece of cloth. I just love that. The the sort of chutzpah of it. Like, I'll give you this that could get me in big trouble, and then I'll give you this other <laughs> thing that you know you gotta deal with it the way you want. It's not so much a you know entryway for the story because of those contrasting modes and genres that he puts into the essay, but it's also crucial. So how do I teach that? Like, do I have him read that first, which is what I want them to do in this sort of scholarly way? But then you need a lot of time, a lot more time than they have 
And okay, so we read the story first, and then you go back and read it, and then it. How does that his narrative of the finding of the manuscript shape our understanding of the story that follows? But it's a lot. It's long. Yeah, it is right. So then only half of them read it. And right. then I jump it up and down, pointing out the <laughs> points that I think are important, you know, like the summary I just gave. So, but in there is the famous passage where he talks about the neutral territory of romance. And he has this amazing domestic sketch scene, which is very popular. And he's sitting in the child's room, basically. There's toys and everything all around. And it's like a parlor playroom and sitting at the fire and thinking and I mean, I like to imagine him sipping uh, whatever he sips, cognac or whiskey or whatever, but he probably wasn't doing that. And he talks about how the moonlight transforms the everyday objects, domestic reality. And that creates a neutral territory somewhere between the actual and the imaginary. And that's what he wants to write. And that's what romance is for him. Mm. And I make a lot about this in various writings, and many, many writers, critics do. But that combination of sort of domestic reality and materiality and, you know, economics and everything is in there, is implied there. But he's going to, oh, he used this great word, transmog- transmogrify. You know, it, it it's almost magically changes sort of hard political social reality. Isn't that what we all need to keep romance alive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's like... I mean, for me, sort of raised as a critic in the 90s on on, on all this, that it's politically informed romance. Mm, You know, it's not, there's no escape. It's Mm. alternate ways of telling truths that can be challenging, even to Hawthorne. There's much, much discussion about this, but, you know, whether Hester turned out too free for him or not. Mm. And for him in his own, in his marriage, in his social life, I would say yes. For him in his speculative, imaginative, intellectual life, probably not. And, and you know, he wrote her free. Like, she's got away from however he and his wife might have dealt with the kind of strict gender roles of the day. Yeah, there was a, it seemed to me, and, and this could just be my modern mind, you know, putting things on when I'm reading, but I couldn't help but feel like he was playing with gender in some ways, that there's Hester, who is the rational being who thinks things through, who carries her burden and thrives. And mm-hmm. then there's Dimsdale, who is kind of the, you know, the frady cat trembling <laughs> at the secrets that he's hidden. And I was wondering how much of that was intentional with Hawthorne and, and how it does relate to his marriage. And then his infamous letter where he says, you know, this damned mob of scribbling women and just his attitude towards women and and Hester and his wife and women writers. Well, the first part, the sort of gender bending, as we used to call it, nobody uses that term anymore. It was so big (laughs) a couple (laughs) decades ago. Um, I I mean, I think that's exactly right. Like he is, he's distributing aspects of human being across the range of characters, regardless of their gender. Okay. Well, that's pretty radical in his day. And not like given now. I mean, it's not, we can't always presume that um, to see what happens. And I mean, it's pretty convincing. Like Dimsdale seems like Dimsdale and, and Hester like Hester. They're not polemical creations to suit that exploration of gender roles and breaking them or changing them, playing with them. 
Um, you know, he does the same thing with childhood with Pearl. Some of Pearl's aspects fit with ideas of childhood of the day, but many don't. I think he experimented for 10, 15 years in short stories, trying out these different things that you might do. And then they all came together in this book. Um, and then he explores them in some ways more sharply in later books of Blythdale Romance and House Seven Gables and Marble Fawn. As for the second thing, like Hawthorne, social beliefs and so forth, that famous passage, <laughs> this is like a passion for among Hawthorne scholars, most Hawthorne scholars, and certainly after the great feminist scholar of the 80s and 90s, Nina Bame, who did all this kind of work arguing that Hawthorne, these are feminist works and that should be taken that way. Um, that letter, the context of the letter is important. What, what's really, for me, unusual is that he allowed himself to vent his spleen semi out loud ever to anyone because he can be wry and ironic and funny in his private letters, but that's like the sharpest. I mean, you can't really, well, you can't see them up there, but I have, it's about 12 inches bookshelf of books, his collected letters, the ones that we had. And I've studied them a lot. I'm fascinated. I find them to be amazing. So that letter's about Grace Greenwood, who is a very successful popular writer for Tickner and Fields. Hawthorne was friends with her you know, professional associates, social friends. And he was pissed off feeling that Tigner and Fields were not pushing his books the way they should. I'm sure you've heard authors do that <laughs> in your experience, in Never. your life. <laughs> and uh, it may be true. I don't know. that. It, but her books, they really pushed him. They just clicked with the market. They sold really well. I mean, Scarlet Letter sold well, but her books were selling like, amazing. So this was somebody he knew and a professional colleague, and he's kind of, you know, whinging and complaining that he's not getting enough attention, basically. So, you know, is that polite, mature, nice? No. Does he have no respect for women writers? No, that's, that's not the case. So he knew that he went over the top and sent a letter right away, backtracking and saying how much he respects her work and the work of other women writers. Nobody quotes the second letter. Right. <laughs> Cancel culture back then. <laughs> and, you know, it's a private letter. It's an asshole thing to say. I don't know. So it's also the context that the two bestsellers in American literature, Susan Warner's The Wide Wide World, which came out a little bit before and was a big, fat, orphan, a kind of romance of manners, not in the erotic sense, but... The trials and struggles of a young woman orphan who's going to fight through the world till she learns to accept her gender role and then succeed. Mm. And it was wildly popular. It sold like 100,000 copies to 2,000 of Scarlet Letter, which was a lot to sell. And then that's one thing. Like, who's going to read my books when everybody's reading these books? It's also a kind of genre mode debate you know like scarlet letter is very different than those books though should be read with them and and is now or has been when people study this stuff i mean for me it was and then harry beecher stowe comes along and sells like an insane number of books that nobody had ever imagined it was possible to sell mm. so he's responding to i'm not saying there's no you know nastiness or misogyny or in it 
but he's responding to this dynamic book market issue. Nobody cares about literary fiction anymore. Literary fiction with moral and ethical critique, as opposed to almost polemic. You know, the, the, there's a kind of follow your gender role polemic to wide, wide world. And there's a sentimental uh, anti-slavery polemic to Uncle Tom's Cabin. Hmm. It's a lot, Codsworth stuff's a lot more complex than that. So interesting. I mean, the same things are happening now, like when you think about Colleen Hoover. We could go on about this, but we should probably move on to another question. So we wanted to ask you, you know, we invited you here because we've kicked off our Scarlet Summer, starting with the reading of The Scarlet Letter. And then we have these other two novels that we're going to read, Hester by Lori Lico Albanez, and then upcoming Alice Hoffman's The Invisible Hour. Why do you think people write is the is the way to say it against or use the scarlet letter inspired as by inspired by, by the scarlet letter why so much out there you know i saw your bingo thing has those i haven't read either of those books and i think well i gotta join your scarlet summer and read them too Ooh, we would love you um, to do that <laughs> um, and i just finished the overstory this is a side thing you so guys read the overstory. loved it yeah so yeah. That, that's a lot and my son who's an engineering school he's gonna do it's all excited because he read a book <laughs> he read that book. But That's there's a, a good lot one. of computer science stuff. He's like, guess turn me into an activist. <laughs> Anyways, the sidebar. Sidebar, he should read Bewilderment. Oh, you know, Richard Powers. That. He that's the book Richard Powers wrote after, which would be and it's a father son book. It'd be it's oh. but it is sad. So keep that in mind. Yeah. Overstory well, was it's sad. It's not like overstory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean. Yes. Oh, good books. Oh, so exciting. So, so I'm obsessed with what some scholars call afterlives and this phenomena of authors living on and through adaptations, remakes, and so on and so forth. And I have dabbled in this for several years, and, and we've had Hawthorne Society panels at the MLA about it, and a lot of really interesting stuff, and I want to pursue this even more. Um, my particular thing, I'm particularly into avant-garde uses of Hawthorne. So like Susan Laurie Parks, and there's New York School poet Bernadette Mayers, who does this weird, amazing stuff with his last unfinished work, Septimius Felton, which I'm working working on. And one of my favorite, which is a plug, do you know Kathy Ackers? No. Blood and Guts in High School. Mm. Oh, wow. It's crazy punk, Lower East Side, 70s, in your face, dirty drawings, everything awful you could possibly <laughs> imagine. And I think she's really great and, and just completely wild. And she writes in a kind of allegory that is part, sometimes it's her life in really raw forms, and sometimes it's tweaked or transformed. And I had students read this. The first chapter is called Inside High School, then Outside High School. And a third of the way through, she has a chapter called A Book Report, and it's a rewriting of Scarlet Letter through this punk feminist Hester Prince point of view. Wow. And it just like... Whoa. And so, yeah, I mean, it could be a trigger warning that it's very intense and just puts in your face the most difficult aspects of gender, like patriarchy and violence against women and all that, but in this brilliantly creative and funny way. So people who take Hawthorne further into their own weird and interesting critique and radical revisionings, that, that's a big part of what I'm interested in as a scholar. Why do people do that? I mean... 
I think it's because Hester Prynne is untethered. It's that what we were talking about earlier. She's like a freed character. A big debate in Hawthorne studies is that why does she come back to yeah. Boston at the end and subject herself to the patriarchy? It's the theocratic patriarchy. I mean, in some ways, I feel like now that was a huge debate in the 90s. And I feel like now, 30 years later, it may be a little easier to understand as we have a little more of a global perspective on the world. Like there are many women who live in cultures like I have a lot of students who wear the hijab and who are, you know, smart. I mean, they're what they are, full, smart, complex human beings. But they choose to follow this cultural tradition. So our world's maybe a little bigger and we can understand her coming back a little bit more. But some critics have argued persuasively that this is, you know, Hawthorne's own conservatism and his society's own conservatism cracking down and, you know, sort of making her come back and containing all those those energies that are released in the middle of the book. So that means later writers can get into that debate and they can either do, you know, a Hester freed by whatever present standards they are or cultures, global locations, or they could, you know, like she, there's further to go and here's the way we're going to do it in our particular version. Or they could focus on the energies that aren't contained and put them into their social, cultural, interpersonal situation. The energy's all there one way or the other. My personal reading is she's not very contained. Mm. You know, she reclaims and transforms all the things that were used against her. And the whole, we have this game, A is for able, artist, abolition, that critics love to do and, and keep doing new readings. There's so many, we just had a panel in the American Literature Association in May and also the author, Dana Medoro, did this. Is, here's a little plug for her book, Certain Concealments. It's called The Politics of Abortion in Poe and Poe Hawthorne in Early 19th Century Abortion. And we call our panel A is for Abortion. And it's a complex argument, but pretty stirring and, and to me persuasive, but hard to ignore that, you know, Hester makes the choice to have her baby. But the possibility of the alternative is always there in the book. And so Dana builds, you know, off of that basic fact, a much more complicated argument. The fact that we can have these discussions with so much variety of social, psychological, metaphysical themes and issues that you can credibly draw from these characters in this situation. That's just like a really fertile and rich resource for all writers. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that she lives is she's alive, right? right. A for alive. Yeah. Um, so you can do so much. You, it's not like you have to resurrect her. And it's right. such a uniquely American story. Yeah. So that I think is possibly an appeal as well. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, that is something people have spoken about at some of these panels, critics from other countries, that it is a really attractive, compelling way to engage America, Americanness and American culture. And that draws people from other places. And that's true in terms of translation, which is another thing we've been having interesting panels on and that I hope we'll publish more about. The history of Hawthorne's translation is fascinating. And one of the things I've learned is that all over, I know, like five places, we had a really amazing talk on Iran and, and when Hawthorne was translated 
into Persian. And but it's also happened in Poland and and in China and Japan. A lot of the early translators are women at a time when there's no professional literary outlet for women. Mm. So they could start by translating Hawthorne. And some, this, uh, I can't remember the person's name, but um, she became one of the first women in Iran to publish a novel after she did all this Hawthorne translation. So it's a way in the culture where American culture is huge. And people can, you know, go to Hawthorne and bring it back their own way and find some cultural authority or access to create their own work. That's fascinating. Mm -hmm. Well, well, speaking of um, American traditions and adaptations, um, (laughs) which you had mentioned earlier, we were talking about the inspiration for, do you have a favorite movie adaptation of The Scarlet Letter? You know, I I need to go back and, and watch them all again. I mean, everybody loves the EVA. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so we, you know, we, we people write papers about it and talk about it fairly often. And it's just, it's kind of fun, right? So, I mean, that's definitely one. And I don't, I don't really have a strong opinion formulated on all of them. And I was looking at that the other day and I didn't know that there was this 1909 silent film, like at the very beginning yeah. of cinema. So I got to go see that. I haven't seen it. Yeah. Very cool. <laughs> We wanted to ask about the Nathaniel Hawthorne Society. You're the president. Is it open for anyone to join? Yeah. Is it for academics? Oh, yeah, it is. And um, I'm sort of in the middle of being president because my colleague, Ariel Silver, is taking over. And then I'll be immediate past president. <laughs> Which, like, you're still on the board. And, I mean, they still do the same amount of work, but Ariel will have the title. Yeah, our membership... Is between two and four hundred people, and many are common readers, as we say, in the most celebratory sense of that phrase. Some are independent scholars, some are creators, some people who are writing plays and various things that are connected to Hawthorne in some way or the other. Um, you know, like a lot of small organizations without any money, we have trouble keeping our website as robust as we want it to be, but we're trying to keep stuff up there. And, you know, we started doing this series of virtual talks and most of those are there and you can see those there. I mean, anybody can see those. I'm just talking about some of the things that we do, but our conferences are open to everyone as well. And, and again, we do have a consistent group of people who aren't academic scholars that participate. One of the things I've constantly trying to do is more outreach through K through 12, more outreach to the common reader. And um, as the society's roots were very much scholars, it started at the MLA in the seventies, the sort of old guard sitting around probably having a drink after panels. And, you know, we want that to change. COVID messed us up as it did so many things and our sequence of conferences in the U.S. has gotten all screwed up, but we're doing our next international conference with the Poe Society in Paris in 2025. So if you have the name in Paris, right on. it's July 4th <laughs> weekend, which is also Hawthorne's birthday. Right. Um, yeah. That's going to be at three different campuses of the Sorbonne. So that there are three different colleges participating. So that'll be neat to different locations. And I don't know where our next one domestically be we're talking maybe Bowdoin Um, we often do Concord Concord's a little expensive and a little hard to get the space but 
Ariel and I met at a conference in Northampton, and then we went to an NEH seminar in Concord about uh, transcendentalist reform and with a focus on women and the people who lead it mostly are writing about the role of women in transcendentalism and in reform movements. Thoreau's sisters, Emerson's aunt, and all these people who are getting a lot more attention now, but who really were, were crucial to everything that happened. That's, That's great. great. Yeah, so I, I have a question. I know we talked about these novels and, and plays and things that have been inspired by Hawthorne. Can you just give us a little bit of an idea of what inspired Hawthorne himself to write this? So if a, a common reader wanted to go back and read some of the books that influenced Hawthorne, what are some they should maybe consider or short stories? Have you seen the Norton Critical Edition of The Scarlet Letter? No. Because I would recommend getting that. And the most recent one, it's edited by Leland Person or Lee Person. And he's a long to founding member of the Hobson Society, but a really brilliant scholar. And that has so much stuff in it. It's great. As historical source material, fictional source, all kind of big, big bibliography that can give you a lot. Oh, I did one other thing. Margaret Fuller is important, right? Yeah. Margaret Fuller is important to the conception of Hester. She's important in Hawthorne's life before he panicked, basically. I mean, you know, he had these really powerful relationships with her and Melville and Margaret Fuller that I think were, re- were, I mean, were clearly very influential on him. And in both cases, he pulled back. You know, he was a conservative person. Like, and, and these were people who wanted like the romantic bond friendship. And it was a little much for him, I think. Um, so he wrote nasty things about Margaret Fuller, too, after that happened. But she was really, really important. So you can look at her works, you know, and, and, and see some of the antecedents that could inspire him to think Hester into possibility. Mm-hmm. One of my colleagues has recently written a book about a novel from the 1840s that he uh, argues was a very clear antecedent and right now i I meant to look that up i'm forgetting the title Uh, i can send it to you his name is richard copley k-o-p-l-e-y and so his it's his most recent book i tend to focus mostly on historical source material and and so like margaret fuller's nonfiction writing would be part of that i mean the other thing is that you know he read a lot and he charles dickens you know was huge at the time and uh, he, he read Charles Dickens, so he'd be influenced by that. I'm going to have to think more about that question. Yeah. You can always yeah. email us a reading list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no. yeah. Uh, yeah, I love his short stories. I mean, some of his stories are among my favorites of that form yeah. of writing, for sure. Like Young Goodman Brown and My Kinsman, Major Malo. Is that how you say that? Malo? Bologna? Not sure. If it was like anglicized or had a little bit of mm, French. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Of it. Just quick short story thing. Read Alice Doan's Appeal, if you haven't. Okay. It's Alice, D-O-A-N-E. And it's this early, weird story that's half sketch about telling stories and half gothic tale. Mm. And that's, I, I like these things that are have a kind of modern or modernist feel to them because they're unfinished. You know, they're sort of the opposite of the tightness of the Scarlet Letter. That they're messy and, mm. and show their sort of, edges. Hawthorne letting his hair down. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, Chuck, this has been wonderful. I don't know about you, Chris, but it makes me want to go back to school. <laughs> Which actually, Chris just went to school, so I shouldn't say that. It's not funny to her. But I would love a chance to just study. You know, I think academia is a, is a wonderful... You guys have a wonderful life. That's how I look at it. Well, thank you. I mean, <laughs> this is the fun part, and class is the fun part, but that's probably only 30%. Yeah. So there's a lot of the stuff you can get in any other job that's yeah not for quite sure as fun. Well, Me- meetings uh, and email, right? The politics. <laughs> yeah, and my dad was yeah, a professor, yeah. and he talked about the politics yeah. a lot. So yes, well, we're glad you got to join us for some fun part. Thank you for helping us to kick off Scarlet Summer, yes. talking about the uh, the main event, the Scarlet Letter. I want to make one last pitch, please. And this is for your literary tourism which is actually my specialty. Like, that's what I write about. And I'm fascinated with Hawthorne's introductions, so like the custom house. But I think you should read The Wayside. Have you read Tanglewood Tales, the children's stories? No. Mm -mm. Definitely worth looking at, especially if you can get an older illustrated edition. It's a great illustrated illustrators. Every generation has illustrated those children's books since, like, 1860s. And, you know, there's, like, Art Deco and Modernist and... Um, so there's a lot of that and they're, they're available online so you can see the images but anyways when he wrote the two children's book the wonder book and tango tales the wonder book is set in the berkshires in lennox where he lived at the time and he writes one of these he called them transmogrified introductions where he creates a young writer a college kid who's babysitting the kids and start telling them these tales so he has this whole complicated fake story but it's inventing literary tourism it's set at the Stockbridge Bowl. It's set at Tanglewood, you know, where the thing is. In. And it's just virtual travel. Like you read this and you're that you go there. So everything you did, Hawthorne sort of anticipated or are going to do, <laughs> anticipated, inspired. So when he's living at the wayside in Concord, he writes the second volume, The Tanglewood Tales. And he has this amazing introduction called The Wayside. And he brings back that imaginary author. And he meets him in one of the stick folly houses structures that Bronson Alcott built because it was their house. So to do Alcott, you have to go to the wayside too, right? So you're going to complete that this time. So read that essay called The Wayside. It's the introduction to Tanglewood Tales. And of course, Mosses to the the old man's, the introductory essay to Mosses. Read those two things before you go. Okay, great. We're going to tour the old man's, but the other one is not open as far as we know. Um, The the wayside. Check again, of course, but that I can't even, I'm so angry about that. I'm speechless. Oh, Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. (laughs) That's it. So what I would say is go there anyways. Yeah. Yeah. Walk around, walk up the hill. There was a microburst that smashed down all the trees and stuff that he wrote about. Mm. But the hill between the two houses, Hawthorne had a walking path. And he was famous for walking on this path and pacing and, and thinking out his books. And he planted the trees there. He brought them back from Europe. So it's off to the left of the house between the two houses. So I'm urging you to go off the beaten path. Don't worry. The Park Service won't hold you very long. <laughs> And, and walk around the house even if you can't get in. Okay. okay. It, it's I just the whole milieu. And, and if you, you read the wayside, you'll see what I mean, what, why it's important. His last book was set there on that path. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. 
We'll be back again with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media, Goodreads, or email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. If you'd like to help support our podcast, please tell others about us, leave a review wherever you listen, and consider becoming a patron. Even a dollar a month is a big help. Learn more about that on our website, bookcougars.com, where you'll find the show notes for this and all of our past episodes. Thanks, everybody. This episode was edited by Pat Keogh Sound Design.